I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and you're listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania, taken from my Sunday sermons. During these times of uncertainty as the coronavirus continues to spread, I pray that the peace of the Holy Spirit would be with you and your family. Here's what we have for today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, I'd like to talk for a moment about some stuff. Um, One of the things that church should be able to do is speak to things that are happening in our culture uh, and in our society. And sometimes it's easy for us to, it's easier for us to just shut up and to be silent about it, but I don't think we can, and I don't think we should. So we've told ourselves, well, we have a massive, a massive problem um, in our country, and we've told ourselves that we've fixed the problem. But our, our, our black friends and neighbors' experience has been different than what we think, or from our experience, and Whenever our black friends and neighbors have tried to open our eyes to some of their everyday experiences, we've told them, you're just imagining things. There's no, ra- there's no way that racism has perpetuated any type of systematic oppression because look how far we've come. We passed those laws a couple decades ago. We're fine now. And when we respond like that, we minimize their pain and we negate their experience, which reinforces racism without us even realizing And I'm going to give you a personal example of how that's played itself out in my own life because I figure it's easier for me to use an example from my own life than just to uh, say things, kind of put it out. It's easier for me to just give an example from from who I am and what I've done in my life. So many, if you know me, most of you watching know me, you know my wife. Uh, If you're watching from out of state, you might not know this, but my wife, she's black. Her name is Shantae. And I think it was on our honeymoon, but one day we were walking somewhere hand in hand. You know, me as a white man, her as a black woman. We were walking hand in hand, and she said to me, I'm getting really hostile looks from people while we're walking. And I didn't notice it at all. She said, we're getting some really hostile looks. And I told her, well... You're, aren't you just imagining that? Why would anybody look at us hostilely? <laughs> like, what's the big deal? Like, we're just walking hand in hand. But she noticed it, and I didn't. And later on, we wound up talking about it, and I learned something really important that I think all white people need to know. Just because you don't see racism doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And just because you don't see it or experience it doesn't mean that systematically there are problems that need solving. Just because you don't see it or experience it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist and that other people experience it constantly. And we've had three deaths in a very short amount of time that has sparked a backlash. Young woman Breonna Taylor was killed by police who did not announce themselves. They broke into her boyfriend's apartment And thinking they were in danger, her boyfriend took a gun and tried to defend them, shooting a couple shots at the officers. Because again, the officers did not announce themselves as police officers. The police fired back, and she, an innocent woman, was killed. 
Ahmad Arbery was running in a neighborhood and two white men thought he was a criminal or they suspected him of being a criminal. So they followed him in a truck, tried to detain him and shot and killed him. And lastly, George Floyd, who as it turns out, was a man of deep Christian beliefs who did a lot of work dealing with gangs and a bunch of other things. And uh, if you like an article about that Christianity today, wrote a very good article about him and his work, and I, I can send that to you if you'd like later on. He was killed by a police officer who, after he was handcuffed, had him on the ground with his knee on his neck unnecessarily, using a level of force that was not appropriate for the situation. And in all of these cases, justice has taken a long time in coming, and for these three cases, there has no justice been done yet. And so we need to realize, brothers and sisters, just because we don't see a problem doesn't mean it's not there, and it doesn't mean that people don't experience it. So as a predominantly white congregation, what I'm going to ask you all to do is I'm going to ask you, and I'm not saying you've done this, but I'm going to ask all of you to not comment on this on Facebook or social media. What I'd like you to do is sit with the reality of these three deaths. Don't get into any wars over possible reasons why this happened or this happened. Sit with the, the reality of their deaths and what happened to them. And normally what happens in situations like this, they'll dig into people's pasts and find something and say, oh, this person did something criminal all these years ago. See, they're perfectly within their rights to think he may have been a criminal. No, <laughs> they were not within their rights. All three of these instances were, were <laughs> I think it's quite safe to say, had race as a primary motive. You can't look at these incidents and see them not as, as motive. And there are countless examples of police departments who have had to go through retraining because of things like this that have happened. And our immediate reaction is to try to defend the people involved because we're a law and order society. And so we try to say, well, you just got to wait and see, you know, kind of what happens. But when we say that, we often don't realize that for many in these communities, in the black community, that justice doesn't always come true for them. It's not always fulfilled for them. And that's a very real thing. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, you don't have to hold to critical race theory to understand and to know that systematic oppression of minorities is still a thing. Even if it's not in the law books, it doesn't mean that it still doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean that the trauma of these events hasn't been passed on generationally through people who've suffered. So in light of other people's suffering, I'm gonna ask that instead of arguing over what's going on, I'd ask you to pray I'd ask you to pray. I'd ask you to pray for our country, pray for yourselves. I'd ask you to, if you get in conversations with, with your black brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors, to listen to what they have to say. Do what you can to maybe support black-owned businesses. Do what you can to support organizations that help black people in their quest for justice and, and equality. And as Christians, you know, we, <laughs> that's kind of like part of what we do, you know, right? Our main job as Christians, right? We're meant to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And part of the good news of Jesus Christ is that in Christ, all people have been brought together into one. 
but that's not a lived experience for many people. So I'd like you to think on that, and I'd like you to consider that, and I'd like you to use your discretion in commenting about stuff like this online, and instead pray for the victims, pray for their families, and pray that justice uh, would be done. And so, that's what I wanted to say. I, I figured it would be best to open the service uh, with that, because uh, I think it's important to say, it's important to note, and it's important that we all begin to examine ourselves and begin to pray and do some very real work for uh, rec uh, racial reconciliation. Let us pray. O God, who on this day taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending them the light of your Holy Spirit, grant us by the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his holy comfort through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. One of the things, brothers and sisters, that comes with attending Christian schools is taking part in what are called chapel services. One chapel service still sticks out in my mind, even to this day. I was very young. I don't remember who the speaker was or how it started. All I remember is that something really strange happened. During the service, I, the whole school was gathered together, and something took place that I didn't quite understand, and maybe still quite don't understand to this day. As you know, I grew up in independent Pentecostal movements, right, like Word of Faith, and, and part of the DNA of Pentecostalism is the belief in the miraculous power of God as something that isn't reserved for those who through prayer and sanctity of living demonstrated holiness through working in miracles. No, everyone was expected to be able to follow the Spirit's leading and operate in the realm of signs and wonders, as well as, and most importantly, one could say, speaking in tongues. And in this chapel service, some of the teachers, during a moment of praying in tongues, began to start laughing, and then they started touching people, and those people started laughing, and then those people touched other people, and they started laughing, and so on, and so on, and so on. In my memory, I was left kind of standing in the room, as no one, I guess, had gotten to me yet. And so, like, I'm a kid, I'm standing there, these people are all lying on the ground laughing uncontrollably. I thought to myself, I'm going to go outside and play. What else am I going to do? I'm a kid. All the adults are on the ground, all the kids are on the ground. I'm standing here kind of like looking. <laughs> so I decide to go outside and play. So I'm stepping over, right? Like the people lying on the floor crying with Pentecostals called holy laughter. And then somebody grabbed my leg and then that experience happened to me. And I remember after it was over, not wanting it to be over. And now that I'm older and hopefully like a little bit wiser, I hope that I'm able to consider my experience in light of scripture and history. Now on the surface, that experience looks something like what I saw, what, what you just heard read from the book of Acts, but those experiences aren't quite the same. And when I think about that experience now, I wonder to myself, how was Jesus glorified in that experience? How was the gospel and all of its life-saving power proclaimed to those who needed it? And that experience was one of uncontrolled hysteria. But brothers and sisters, when we see the way the Spirit moves 
in the scriptures, we don't see the incapacitation of the human person and the human will. And I say all of this because we know that today is Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit was poured out once for all on the followers of Jesus, fulfilling his promise to the disciples. And Pentecost can be, and forgive the glib use of the word, it can be a bit triggering for me and for others who no longer are part of that movement because it can dredge up experiences like the one I mentioned a few moments ago. And it dredges up in others similar experience that they have had. And, and while on the surface they might seem like they may be from the Spirit, might not be. And I, I want to be clear, I'm not saying all of my experiences in Pentecostalism were bad. I had some very good ones. But we have to look at those experiences in light of Scripture and the history of the church and what resulted from those experiences. And so in that light, I want to talk about the indicators of the Spirit's presence and what the Spirit does in us as followers of Jesus Christ. So we're going to start with the reading from Numbers. And I'm trying to look up here because the camera is now up here and I used to be looking at it down here. So I have to remember to look up there. So when we heard that story read from Numbers, this serves as a type of what's going on to the disciples at Pentecost. In the story from the book of Numbers, the children of Israel complained to Moses about the lack of meat. Right, so God had been miraculously providing them with manna, bread from heaven, and for many, this is not enough. In fact, verse 4 in Numbers 11 says, the rabble had a strong craving. And they begin to reminisce about the meat they were able to get in Egypt. So let that sink in. Divine bread baked in the kitchen of heaven, <laughs> right? That God's bakers poured out for them every day to pick up on the grass that was there. And when they picked it up off the grass, it wasn't like they didn't need a five-second rule because it's holy bread that just appeared from heaven, right? So they picked it up and they ate it and it sustained them. All they had to do was wake up and every morning collect it. And for them, the food of slavery was starting to sound better in their minds. In response to their complaint of frustrated Moses prays and he asks God to kill him as there's no way he can deliver on that. He prays, I'm not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. So what does God do in response? God says, select 70 elders. And this is a figurative number. Moses gathers them and all of the people gather the tabernacle. The Lord descends and some of his spirit that he had placed on Moses which is the Holy Spirit, he places some of that spirit on the elders. And as soon as this happens, these elders, these 70 elders, begin to prophesy. Now, there were two men that didn't show up for the meeting, and they remained behind in the camp. The same experience happens to them. They're not part of the service, they're not part of the worship, but the spirit descends on them. They have been given the spirit too, and they begin to prophesy just like the other elders. And Moses hears of it, but he doesn't put a stop to it, and he wishes all of God's people could have that spirit and prophesy as well. So one thing we see here in this text is you have these two groups of people, you know, you have the 70 elders and the people gathered in the camp, and then you have the two remaining behind. Now in, in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, we see God did something, right? Due to the sins of those he placed to watch over them, God did what he, what's called dispossessing and scattering the nations. And when you read the list of nations, there are 70 of them. And how many elders do we have here in this story? Seventy elders. I think it's not a stretch to say that the seventy here are representative of God's desire to bring in his people from all over, Jew and Gentile, 
And then the two in the camp are representative of God's desire for the Hebrew people to continue in the covenant as realized in Jesus. Now there's another thing to note here that when the Spirit is given to them, they prophesy, but only that one time. Now prophecy, as we understand it in Scripture, is not about prognosticating about the future and then trying to scry or figure it out using, you know, entrails or potions or something like that. Prophecy in Scripture comes from those people chosen by God to have insight into his divine plan and then to communicate that plan to the people. And the prophets do that. And when they do that, it usually revolves around them reminding the people of the covenant and calling them back to it. Or else these are the consequences of going back on the covenant you made with God or that God made with you, I should say. Prophets do that. And to go deeper, tied in with that, is also the testimony of the coming Messiah, right? So we should be able to say, brothers and sisters, that when we see prophecy talked about particularly in the New Testament, it's testimony to the revealing of Jesus Christ, which then takes us to what we heard read in Acts and the giving of the Spirit. So it's a long text, and we probably should have kept reading past verse 21, um, but there's a lot going on here, and I always say that, I know, but what we have here is that fulfillment that we read last week when Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, right, and wait for the Holy Spirit. And we see here fulfilled, right, in Acts, what Moses said in Numbers. He said, are you jealous for my sake? Would that the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them too. Unlike the elders in Numbers who received some of the spirit, and never prophesied again after that experience, the, the apostles and those who believe will continue to do so. And remember what I said about God's intention to bring the Jews and Gentiles together into his people? We see the mechanism of that happening right here. Now our Pentecostal friends might look at this and say, see, it's about speaking in tongues. That's the sign of the Spirit's infilling. But not quite. Notice here what happens when they speak in tongues. They speak languages they don't know. Languages that the Jewish inhabitants of foreign lands knew. See, we have to remember when the Jews were released from captivity, right? When the Persian emperor said, return to your land, right? We know the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. If you don't, go read Nehemiah. That's your homework. Nehemiah's sad. And he's like, oh, I'm so sad. And he's also the cupbearer for the king. So he's got the wine. He's like, oh, but, you know, kind of to himself. He's, it's all over his face. And he's a man of deep prayer and piety. And the Persian king says to him, what's wrong with you, dude? I mean, this is my paraphrase. And he's like, sorry, your majesty. Like, I'm just really bummed, you know, because my homeland is in ruins and my temple is destroyed and the people are kind of scattered. So the Persian emperor is like, I like you, buddy. I like the cut of your jib. I'm going to send you back and you're going to rebuild everything. And here, here's a bunch of letters telling people to help you. And here's uh, uh, supplies for you to go and do it. And uh, yeah, go and go and take care of that. Uh, that that's, that's great. And, you know, bring, bring a bunch of people back. So he did. And, you know, go read the story if you want to know how that turned out. But not all of the people who were scattered abroad, not all of them returned. A lot of them stayed where they were in these foreign lands. That's why, but they still had to come to the temple, right, as part of their religious duty. And it says here in the text that they were devout. So they're doing what they knew to do. And what they say in the second part of verse 11, they say, we hear these Galileans, right, essentially these uneducated doofuses, they're telling us in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And this is why I think, brothers and sisters, prophecy and not the specific act of speaking in tongues is the sign or the marker of the Spirit's reception 
by believers because it's not just about speaking the languages, right? And then in Pentecostal theology, it's not even actual real languages that you're speaking. It's actually a private personal language. But when we read scripture, we see something very different. And the content of what they speak is testifying to the mighty works of God. That's why I say prophecy is a sign and that's what prophecy does. Testifies to the mighty works of God as revealed through Jesus Christ. So Peter, he's given finally this understanding by the Spirit. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to give you the Spirit, and he's going, to, he's going to help you. He's going to remember you, all of the stuff that I said. And by the way, he's also going to help you interpret the Old Testament, which is why we say without the infilling of the Holy Spirit, we cannot accurately interpret Scripture. And Peter links what's happening to the words spoken by the prophet Joel. He links the prophetic speech with the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament, and he points to how God is fulfilling that promise right now. Right? This outpouring of the Spirit, it's not just for guys, by the way. God's going to pour out His Spirit on women too, young and old. And they're going to prophesy. And then he speaks of judgment to come. And that those who call on the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, will be saved. Well, saved from what? Saved from future judgment, right? That's what we are being saved from, right? We talked about a few weeks ago, when we talk about being saved, it's not just about like having your ticket punched, you're in or you're out, right? You're saved from ultimate and final judgment at the end of time. We didn't read it, but he preaches the death and resurrection of Jesus, and he concludes with, in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of who? The Holy Spirit. For the promises for you, for your children, and all who are afar off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So we see here, Holy Spirit inspired and empowered prophetic proclamation. Prophetic proclamation. Which is kind of the title of today's sermon. Pentecost and prophetic proclamation. Notice Peter's fearlessness too, right? This marked difference from what we've seen of him throughout the Gospels. So you might be thinking to yourself, okay, I'm a Christian and I've never prophesied like that. I've never had an experience uh, that mimics like what we just heard today, right? I've never been seated in a room where I've never been in a service and I've never seen flames of fire resting on somebody's head and I've never heard anybody speaking in languages that they didn't know that sparked 3,000 people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That, that account in Acts is not meant to be seen as a template that all Christians are supposed to fall into, right? When Peter says, he calls them to repentance, he says, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Which is why when I baptize, when I pour the water, I also make the sign of the cross and I say, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever. Because that person who is being baptized is receiving that Holy Spirit that was given. And the Holy Spirit is, we have to remember, right? It's not Casper we're talking about. The Holy Spirit is God. So, the experience of the upper room is not one we point to and say, if we don't have that experience and the Spirit isn't in us. That particular outpouring in the upper room was unique. It was the sending of the Spirit. And the Spirit didn't go away after that, right? It's not like after the Holy Spirit fell, right, in the upper room 
and, and, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and, and did all these. It's not like the Holy Spirit's like, my work here is done. See you guys later and kind of walks off the scene. The Holy Spirit never left. The Holy Spirit is still here. And the Holy Spirit is in us. He's still here doing the work in and through us that he did in the hearts of the apostles. The point is, brothers and sisters, that God's mighty spirit is given to those who repent and place their lives into the hand of Christ. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is yours. You may not have an experience like this, like they did, but that doesn't mean the spirit isn't in you. And remember, the Holy Spirit then, if, it's been, if he's been given to you, that means there's a boldness to speak of Jesus Christ that you might not even know that you've had, that you have. There are times when we are to tell what Jesus has done for us and to do so with boldness. I'm not talking about standing on a street corner with a megaphone, but I mean, maybe there are times where we might need to do that. <laughs> That's easy for me to say, right? Because every time I get into this pulpit, I am in a sense prophesying because I'm interacting with the text of scripture and I'm disclosing, disclosing Christ to you in the scriptures, right? We're not... We don't read the Bible as like a series of like fancy fairy stories that just tell us good ways to be nice people. Like there's a part of that where we're learning to be moral people, but our morality is always like revolves around God's revelation through Jesus Christ. It's not just a book of, of fairy tales and parables so we can be nice to everyone. That's not what scripture is, right? The scripture is the word of God that discloses or shows to us the word of God, Jesus Christ, the eternal Logos, the son of the father. And so when I preach scripture to you, I'm in a sense prophesying to you because I'm, I'm, I'm proclaiming Christ through the scriptures, the plan of God <laughs> to renew and redeem the world. So when people ask you about your faith, brothers and sisters, you can boldly tell it. And you know what? You can take a little step of faith too. And to call on them to do as Peter said, repent and be baptized and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Like the children of Israel, right? Remember back in the, in the numbers reading, they yearned for meat that could not satisfy them while spurning the bread from heaven we spurn Jesus' gift freely offered to all humanity, and we turn to other means of sustaining our souls. Remember, right? The meat that they were fantasizing about, the meat that they wanted to eat, they were tired of the divine bread, the meat they wanted to eat was from their time as slaves. And one of the main pictures of what salvation is, is freedom from slavery. God leading his people out of slavery into freedom. And that's why the Exodus story is so powerful because it's not just a picture of our own personal salvation, right? Or our corporate salvation as the church, right? But the Exodus story was grasped by slaves who were forbidden a lot of things, right? But they discovered the Exodus story. And in spite of the professed Christianity of their captors, many of the slaves became Christians and they looked at the Exodus story as a picture of their own coming freedom from their actual physical slavery. 
And this is why the gospel is so powerful, brothers and sisters, because it speaks to us on so many different levels. We prefer the food of slavery, the children of Israel, to the divine bread from heaven. That is dangerous, brothers and sisters. So what we then need, right, if we prefer the bread <laughs> the bread of, of, of slavery, of, of the bread of, of being bound, if we prefer that bread to the heavenly bread, then sometimes what we need is a prophetic proclamation to smack us in the, on the upside of the head and to wake us up out of that, right? And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. When the gospel is preached, right, then the implications of what the gospel means for how we live our lives should, should be smacking us on the cheek every day. I remember I lived at home for a while when I first moved back from, from South Africa with my parents, and my sister had a little girl, my, my oldest niece named Amanda, and I remember I would help my sister because she worked at night. I would help her and my parents. I would help her look after Amanda while my, while my sister was working. And I remember Amanda would come into my room while I was sleeping because it was right across from hers. And I'd be sleeping. <laughs> and if you know me, I like my sleep. Don't disturb it or else. Um, <laughs> Shantae can testify. I would be sleeping and Amanda would come in and she would do this every day. Wake up. Uncle Michael, wake up. And she would slap my face <laughs> hard every morning and would wake me up. And she would say the same thing every morning you want to play with me? Right? It's a silly illustration, but right, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Every single morning, the Holy Spirit wakes us up. Repent. Believe the good news. This is what Christ has done for you. How are you going to spread that? Who are you going to tell? How are you going to be bold for Christ in the public arena? How are you going to be bold for Christ in the private arena? It's easy for us to be bold for Christ and to stand up in church and say, yay, I love you, Jesus. It's another thing entirely when challenged by our friends and family about our faith. The Holy Spirit gives us that boldness to speak of Jesus Christ and to say to all people, the bread of heaven <laughs> is much more sustaining. The water, the river of living water that will flow from us is preferable to the food of slavery, to the bread, or to the meat of slavery. And like the children of Israel did when they gorged themselves on this quail, they ate so much, they ate so much of it that, that sickness broke out and they were destroyed. We are destroyed by sin when we gorge ourselves on the food of slavery rather than the bread of heaven. And the only true food and drink that will satisfy is given by our Lord Jesus Christ, mediated through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who sent us the Holy Spirit, be all glory together with his Father, who is from everlasting and is all holy good, and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If anyone listening is in the area here in Northampton and in need of help or food or supplies, please reach out and let us know through private message on our Facebook page, Zionstone UCC, or through our website, zionstoneucc.com. To all who have given and continue to support us during the closing of the church during the coronavirus, thank you so much for your love. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain